Last year, we moved into flat four. We'd have people over almost every night and soon people would turn up completely uninvited, which we loved. We wanted some time to sit and catch up each week so we could chat about what it's like to be in a creative industry like music, film, theater, whatever. So we started a podcast. This is the Flat Forum. And this is season two. Remember, new episodes drop every Sunday at six and all our episodes are available on Spotify, iTunes, or whatever your preferred listening site may be. This guest is someone that isn't just doing well in their field, they're doing the best in their field. Winning Tour Manager of the Year for his work. Starting as a promoter and working his way up to tour managing bands such as The Sex Pistols, Blur, The Gorillas, PJ Harvey, The 1975, Duran Duran, Natasha Bedingfield, amongst many, many more. I don't know of any single player in his field that can claim to have worked with such a high quantity of high quality artists yet is well known to have a fantastic sense of humour and be incredibly easy to work with even on the biggest tours in the world. Beyond that, I know very little as today is the first time I've met him myself. Thanks for coming to Flat 4, Craig Duffy. And handsome. He's very, very handsome. I was shocked at how handsome he was. Why? It's a lying started already. And not to forget, Mr. Marcus Duffy, friend of the podcast, season one, episode six, I believe. Best season. It best was. episode of the season. Uh, I've done an intro on you before. Go and listen to that. If this is your first time meeting Marcus, he's now a tour manager and production manager in his own right, just returning from tour with The Good, The Bad and The Queen, Declan J. Donovan, and heading out next month with Luna Bay. I figured it'd be nice to get him along again, seeing as we had so much fun last time. He also told me specifically to tell you that... If anyone fancies a bit, hit him up on the gram at Duffbag. And as always, yeah. I'm your host, Adam <laughs> Rowley. Should we get into this? Let's Why do not? It. Yeah? Can't believe you put that in. It's like, what you told me to put it in? <laughs> <laughs> How are you all doing? Uh, lovely to meet you, Craig. Thanks for coming all the way from Portsmouth. <clears throat> lovely to be here. Thank God it's the right side of London. Yeah, right? So you're in London for a meeting today? Yeah, just uh, had to drop by the studio and uh, Damon's studio and do a little bit of... Um, handing off accounts and money and answering questions, closing up the big business at the end of the year. Because you did quite a big tour re reasonably recently, well, right? We've, yeah, we've sort of been going for two and a half years, really, with with Damon stuff. He gorillas straight into the good, the bad, and the queen. Right. Um, and that finished, and we all went, great, fantastic, we really need a break. And then we went, mm, maybe we should finish all the bits that we didn't finish. What do you mean? Like the accounts and the bits and pieces, like that. <laughs> the bits that get left behind all on the tour. boring stuff that you <laughs> you do it on tour as you go along, and you actually have to finish it, present it, and go. There you go. There's all the receipts. They're all scanned, and it's all the boring stuff that nobody really wants to do. Right. So you're on the tour with Mo what? It's October. Yeah. We finished the tour in August. <laughs> I went on holiday. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. I'm allowed to have a life. No. Yeah. No, no, no. No, no, I am allowed to have a life. Are you really? Yeah. Have you earned that? I have earned that right. Marcus, Marcus has yet has not earned the right to have a life. <laughs> but I still do because I'm fucking nailing it. <laughs> um, but, Excuse what, his language. If you've gone on tour together, what's that like? Because I mean, if you've both just been on the Good, the Bad, the Queen tour. And Gorillas. Yeah, but the, uh, this one, Marcus was like an actual doing a thing. He was doing a thing. Out, right? No, no, he was Shut doing up. a thing on, um, he was doing a thing on Gorillas as well. He came into Gorillas. Marcus has been around a long time. Okay. Mm -hmm. He's always there, sort of in the way, and occasionally... <laughs> like a bad he, smell. Yeah, like the end of his microphone. <laughs> but occasionally... Listen to uh, episode six, season one, for the reference there. Occasionally, um, he, he would always help out. Him, him yeah. and various people from the college, when he was at BIM, yeah. would come along and help. Um, whenever I needed people, if I were in London doing rehearsals, it was mm. great. They would come along and all the band, all the crew would be sort of inclusive and they would just get a chance to help me out. Yeah. 
you know, if I needed crew or we, they just needed to get a bit of experience. Is it so cool seeing him now, around. Like, doing his own thing though? Yeah, absolutely. It's brilliant. I mean, he's always been comfortable because he's always been in that sort of environment. People mm. would be at the house or he would come to shows. So he's sort of grown up with it. You know, I've been with Damon now 22 years this year. That's nuts. 21 years? 22 years. Um, and he's always, you know, been floating around, whether it was sitting in the dressing room or sitting on the side of stage. Creep. Was that this year? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> sitting in the dressing room, spying on him. <laughs> Filming exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's always been about with whatever I'm doing, really. So if I, uh, once he was at BIM, if ever I could get him in to do things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or get any of his his team in rise been down and um will where will was rest yeah, yeah. his soul would be down helping us out and doing things just really nice and then for it to be recognized that he's sort of all right actually mm. and to be able to take him out on the road and for it to work without us killing each other well, what i was going to ask because last time marcus came on it was just before you went on tour i think it was the day before you went on tour with the good brother queen was it or like the week of because you only had that one week spare i think and then you went away right oh, okay maybe um yeah. What would we? What was it like? Did it go as well, well as you thought? It was actually um, slightly less intense. Well, intense, yeah, yeah. Than Gorillas was because with Gorillas, I was his assistant, so I was directly beneath him yeah. working. You know, whereas production management on the Good, the Bad, and the Queen, there's I was sort of much more crew focused. And and Dad was much more band focused, so mm. we were. While we still saw each other every day and worked together, we you were together, slightly slightly more separate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a bit more together rather than four. Yeah, that's so cool though. <laughs> uh, Craig, where did you start everything though? Because like, like for some of us, well, I didn't grow up in music, but I mean Charlie did, and and some of our friends did, and obviously you grew up in music, so it makes sense for you to follow that route. But then when you start with no influence. I had my mum and dad were were around music scene in the fifties, late fifties, in yep. the skiffle scene mm-hmm. in London, in the coffee coffee bar, coffee shops in London in the late fifties. Then you know, and my dad used to play guitar in a folk band and sing and all the rest of it. And that sort of drifted off when they got married and had kids and became sort of, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Duffy looking after their children and having to work for a living. So, uh, but they were sort of a bit offbeat when they, you know, when dad got married, he was one of about four people in London with long hair and a beard. It was very much the short back and shoulders time of the late fifties. Um, and they were sort of beatniks and, and around these clubs. So they weren't fussed about looks and, and about trying stuff. So when I sort of hit 14, 15, punk rock came out. And I loved it. And a couple of friends of my brothers up the road, because he's a couple of years older than me, um, were into it. So I used to go and sit up in a bedroom with those guys and we would listen to, you know, listen to the Sex Pistols and the Damned and the Clash. And and I thought it was fantastic. Were they quite small bands then? then? They weren't small, but they were all on their first record. So right. And punk had just sort of started to come through in into the public eye. I remember seeing... Sex Pistols on the Bill Grundy show when it all kicked off and there were people smashing tellies and there were mm. headlines all over the papers the next day. I was still at school at that point but thought it was amazing and that was the start of the awareness of punk rock for a lot of people. I mean, if I'd have been two years older, I'd have loved to have been around that time. Yeah. As it was, you know, I sort of followed in on the back, t- back end of that but I lived somewhere where I could go and see bands all the time 
I was just outside London, but I was close to Uxbridge, to Slough, to High Wycombe, and all these bands at Aylesbury and Reading, all these bands would play in these places all the time. So it was really easy for me from the age of 14 or 15 to go and see bands, and I did all the time. And it was cheap, right? They were it, like a, well, a, it was a cheap. quid. It was cheap, but it was comparative. You know, it's uh, 125 back then would have got you a pint, uh, you know, or a ticket wasn't so expensive, but it's, just, I guess, the same now. Tickets yeah. are expensive, but everything has gone up proportionately. But I ended up just sort of hanging out with bands, having a drink, and then chatting to them, and then giving them a hand with carrying a bit of gear in. But you say that like quite nonchalantly, but like 90%, 99% of people at the show didn't do that. That that takes some initiative to to maybe to stay at a show I mean, maybe and help it was, someone. Maybe it was my you know I was just around. I wasn't working because I was either still at school or I'd just left school. Did you want to be in a band? He was I in a band. Was you in, were a band in a band? Very what were they called? He was the front man of no, a band. No, you weren't. What were they called? Rubber Love. Rubber Love. R U B B A L U V. Are you on Spotify? <laughs> no. Do you want to record a comeback EP? <laughs> no. He had it. He had the words dyed into it or shaved, dyed, dyed. into his hair. I um, was we. I'll get to. I'll get That's to that it. in a minute. I'll get to that in a minute. So when I got into music, I you know there were a couple of bands that I'd seen. I really liked little local bands playing little pubs and clubs, and I would just you know we would see them at gigs, and you'd get just get talking to them like you do when you're sixteen years old, seventeen years old. You see someone, you give them a wave, you have a drink, you have a chat. You're there, you might be there early, you might be there late. You yeah. just have, you know. Just, you just a face on the scene. Exactly. And then you help them out a little bit. And then over time, you just realise you enjoy doing it. I remember being at school and careers advice at school, where they took you in a room and said, right, what do you want to do? Do you want to work in Tesco's? Do you want to work here? Do you want to work in a warehouse? And you're like, no, I want to be a rocket scientist. Or I'd like to work in music. And fair credit to my school, they found us some sort of course that we could go on for a day that even back in the late 70s was to do with being in the music industry. I mean, it was pretty hopeless, but myself and a guy called Jimmy Potter from my school both sort of went, we want to be in the music industry, we love the idea, and they sent us off to do it. Um, Jimmy and myself are still in the music industry. We don't see each other too often, but we, we cross paths occasionally. He was a studio manager up at a, a big recording studio in London called Nomis for a long time that everyone used to record in in Shepherd's Bush back in the 80s. Wow. And he's now doing audio work. But we both sort of came out of school and didn't really do anything because we wanted to do music. And uh, luckily, one thing led to another. I met this person, I met that person. There were a lot of shows put on by this guy called John Curd, who's quite a famous promoter from the late 70s in London. He did all the sort of punk new wave shows, all the biggest tours, um, and he promoted shows at Lyceum and the Electric Ballroom that, that I used to go to every week. And if I could, I would always get in for free, climbing in through the back doors or back windows or helping someone carry some gear in just to get in for nothing. He would invariably see me and throw me out, and then I would try and get oh, back really? in again. This went on as sort of tit for tat for, for years, where I'd be on the guest list or I'd be helping with the, the PA or the lights or whatever. And he'd still throw you out? Yeah, because <laughs> he knew I never bought a ticket. Yeah. And eventually I said to him, look, I'm going to be at these shows. I'm going to be at every one of your shows I'm at. I either buy a ticket or I get in on the guest list or I help or I'm working for the PA or the lights or whatever. So just give me a fucking job. Don't have to pay me very much money, but I just yeah. want to come and do it. Yeah. So he said to me, after, after a month of me bugging him, he said to me, come on, come down on the 
Tuesday you do some show at the Electric Ballroom. So I turned up at the Electric Ballroom and went, right, I'm here, be on the crew. And they were like, uh, we don't know anything about it. I said, well, John told me to come down. So I sort of stuck around for the day and and uh, they paid me. And then I never really looked back. After about you know a few months of doing that, I was... Were you nervous on that day? I knew people there. Anyway? I knew people there, so not really. I mean, I knew some of the crew because I'd been around with them, you know, at shows. So I knew a lot of the people. Mm. But it was the first time I ever got paid for doing it. You know, before How much that, fifteen pounds for not a day. Bad. People now intern. My friend has finished a six-month internship, and she wasn't paid for it. It's ridiculous. This was yeah. a one-off gig. It was a long day, but yeah, fifteen quid a day it used to be back then. Um, and uh, I, you know, John was at that point one of the busiest promoters in London, so I literally survived on doing that sort of stuff. And for years, up until the mid eighties, when I started doing bits for other bands, I did some work with the Damned, who I'd known for a long time. Yeah, and was I'd, it cool working with the bands? Because you said you listened to them in your, with your friends, and now you're working. Well, then you're working. Pretty much all of them I've worked, all of the bands that I loved back then, I've done stuff with. I didn't tour manage the Sex Pistols. What I did was um, I was the promoter on a bunch of their shows when they right. came back. Okay. But I tour managed and co-managed the Damned for a long time. Was that a pinch yourself moment? The Pistols one was, yeah, it was quite special because they were, I never saw them in the day and they were one of those bands that were, you know, you never thought you would see them. And then when they reformed, I didn't see them because I was away on tour. Right. And then all of a sudden I got asked to do, there were sort of five or six shows at Brixton Academy and some shows in um, Hammersmith and Bits and Bobs. So that was really nice to do that. Mm. Same with the Stranglers. You know, odd shows have come in that I've done with those guys, but never a lot. The Damned, I'd been mates with. I'd known them for a long time since working with John back in the early 80s. Right. I'd seen them, at, you know, we'd been doing shows at the Lyceum and the Palais and all over the place. And then I, you know, I got on really well with the band when I toured with the support band that were on their tour in 1985. And then I've been sort of friends with him ever since. Funnily enough, I spoke to Rat on the way up here today. He's still a really good friend of mine. And I went out and tour managed them a couple of years ago in a gap between stuff that Damon was doing. So mm. I've still got the connection there with those guys. And it's great. And it all came from being, being around at gigs. I'm just following the just, scene. Just, just being following, like yeah. persistently... That. We're always there, you know, if you're that into your music, and I've said this to, you know, to people before, if you want to get into it, if you really want to be involved, get down there, go and bug the guy who owns the local club and say, look, yeah. I'll come and help. Yeah. Because people need help. They might not have any money, but at some point someone's going to go, this guy's okay. Yeah. He's worth a phone call, he's worth a punt, it's worth, you know, chucking something his way if you need someone. Yeah, definitely. Because time, it comes up that you need people to help you. And you make a phone call and get people down. Mm. So I just sort of drifted into it really like that. I'd done a lot of work with John, worked with all sorts of bands. So if you started like just helping out, like lifting stuff, doing the PA, doing like basic stuff like that, now you're best known as a tour manager. At what point does the, oh, I'm plugging in a PA system transition into, oh, I'm managing 55 you, you featured start artists? With the, you start with the just humping the, humping the boxes around. Then, you, you know, you just... Oi, oi. Pick a little bit. Of, who's, who's the boxes? <laughs> Were they a girl band in the eighties, seventies? <laughs> I didn't wait that long. 
<laughs> um, <laughs> the you start with just, I mean, literally I started with just sort of humping, helping PA companies set up. So then you get to work with the, the, the PA companies. Yeah, you yeah, do yeah. a little bit of work with the PA company and they were doing lots of shows with little bands I was working with mm -hmm. and working for John. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of bands around that I was, a lot of little companies like that I was doing little bits of work for, little bits of audio, little bits of lights. Yeah. So then by the time I was working full-time for John, I had a bit of a working knowledge of all the various little bits and pieces. And then it's just, then you become, you get into the sort of production side of thing once you've got a little bit of knowledge of stuff and you're prepared to be that person that accepts some responsibility and wants rather than just doing your job and then walking away that actually wants to get involved yeah. it just progresses a bit so i left john's in about 1992 i think when these guys in fact marcus wasn't born when his brother was about eight weeks old i went off on tour with the chippendales as their production manager that was my first full-time production management gig. the strippers the strippers did you were you production managing or stripping both both no production managing <laughs> Was it was it an official? Like I, I I don't know anything about that era in terms of like the industry side of things. Was production managing a job role, or was oh, it yeah. just? It's always been a, it's yeah? always been a job role because okay. the band the, the tour manager looks after the band and the tour, and you turn up at the gig with the band, and you need everything else done. So, so you have a production manager, manager okay. who will take care of that. So when I walk through the door nowadays with the band, I go up to Marcus and I go right. Where's this? Where's that? What's going on? Are we yeah. on time? Tell me that all this stuff is done, that the you know dressing rooms are done, the PA's done, the lights right. are done. Yeah. Are we on time with the show? Are we on time with the sound check? What are the band doing to eat? You know, all that stuff that gets sorted out, sorry, sorted out before the band arrive. Sure. So that's his department. But I did that with the Chippendales for a while. Um, <laughs> that was a, a very, I mean, they had three troops of these guys. What sort of things did you need to prep? Like in the dressing Lube. room, but lots of oil. There was some oil. They had a... <laughs> what was their rider? Man they thongs. They had a big banana. <laughs> yeah, bananas. That they filled with... Um, with Microwave watermelon. With what? Baby lotion. And there was a whole sort of fake masturbation scene that's accumulated in baby lotion being sprayed everywhere. There was a... And then they were like, Craig, you're fired. You're doing the baby lotion bit too much. <laughs> Not in the dressing room. <laughs> yeah. Not in the dressing room. I'm trying no. to eat my dinner. <laughs> Put the custard away. Custard. So okay. I did that for a while, and then uh, and then I sort of drifted around doing various little bits and pieces of bands. How, how was the Chippendales? Oh, no, I, I think we should stick on this for a Let's bit. Let's stick with it. The Chippendales are very interesting. I mean, they had they were massive. They had a troop of guys touring around the UK almost constantly. They had two troops out in Europe one doing Southern Europe and one doing Northern Europe. They played to up to four or 5,000 screaming girls every night in theatres all over the country, multiple shows. They Jesus. then came down at the end of the show and stood there with their sort of topless, oiled-up bodies and had photos taken with the girls, which they charged them a five for each for or something. So they made an absolute fortune. And it was oh, massive. Man. It was all done on a budget show-wise but it was still a production that they had to walk in and do. So, right. Who got you that gig? Uh, that came through uh, one of the PA companies I used to work with. I was just chatting to him saying, I'm really hacked off with where I am. And he said, well, I've got a job. You think you can deal with it? And, and off I went. Yeah. Um, and, you know, luckily it wasn't too hectic and I did learn a lot as I went along over the first, that first tour. 
But I never really, I always preferred the tour management side of it, dealing with the bands and getting away from that, the, the production side. For a long time on the way up, you do you tend to do both. So you will end up on smaller tours. I mean, as I did with the start of GBQ, actually, I did both sets and then it was just too much for me, which is when Marcus came in. I guess when there's a smaller crew, it's like, well, there's not if there's as no much money. to manage, right? Oh, there's, there's money not, to there's not as much. There's yeah. not as much money. There's not, no, there's not as much to manage if you're not turning up with sound lights and, sure. and all the rest of it and sure. you're carrying all that. So you've got trucks and buses and lots of people. I mean, by the time we got to Gorilla's Land, I had th- three assistants on the first Gorilla's tour. Two, well, not the first. On the tour in 2010, I had three assistants. We managed to do it with two on this last tour. But there were um, fewer people. There were less featured artists. I mean, at one point we were running five buses in America. Just for the band party? Just for the band party with 10 people on a bus, plus all the management flying in and out and all the rest of it. I mean, I, I want to get on to how you get 50 people to clear their schedules for a year at some point. But like, but you pay them. <laughs> but if you, if, so you, did you start working with Damon in the Blur days? Yeah. Before Blur started? Did no, you I started in 1998 first? with Blur. And that came about, their last tour manager um, had a bit of a nervous breakdown in America and just disappeared in the middle of a tour. And I was at home on a Saturday or Sunday morning. Sunday morning, I think. And Marcus was alive? Marcus was... Did you say this was 98? 98, yeah, he so was three. two or three years old, yeah. Yeah. He was and we just, just moved house, life. right? We were just about to move house. So I got a call on the Sunday morning, I think it was. Hello, would you like to do Blur? And I said, yeah, of course. Love to do Blur. Was that a think... massive phone call at the time? Was that well, kind it was, of in line but, with what you were doing? but also, no, it was sort of in line with what I was doing, but it was, I expected it to be, oh yeah, no problem. Well, the tour starts in three or four months time. So let's get into, let's come and have a meeting. Let's get some prep going on. And I said, great, you know, very interested. When does it start? And they said, well, can you fly out tomorrow? <laughs> and I said, no, <laughs> can't fly out tomorrow. I said, moving house on Thursday. I can fly out on Thursday because I'm only moving into storage and then it, mm. the family are going down to live with the in-laws while we sold a house but hadn't bought a new one yet. So I then sort of frantically worked packing for three days and for three nights I spent on the phone and on the fax advancing shows and saying, hello, my name's Craig, I'm taking over from the old tour manager, and they all universally said, who's the uh, tour manager? We haven't had any communication from him. By the way, you're due here in six weeks, and have you got your visas? Holy fuck. So I flew to America. Out of interest, don't have to say any name. Did the old tour manager get any other work after that? Uh, he's worked with a couple of bands. Around. Yeah, he's worked with a couple of bands. I mean, he just was burnt out, basically, and it's an easy thing to happen yeah, in this course. business. Um, he has done a lot of work since. I've seen him a couple of times. But he, yeah, it was, you know, it wasn't in a good place. and That's so tough. It, yeah, it's easy done. It happens. You get sort of overwhelmed by it all. But, he, you know, he bounced back and he's, uh, he's out there doing things. Amazing. Amazing. I guess the mental health thing then wasn't really a thing. As in, like... <laughs> it wasn't a thing that anyone talked about or knew about. Yeah. Um, or, you know, but yeah. Is it a lot better now on your tours? There's a lot more awareness of it now. Okay. It's still a big problem. Yeah, and it's still it's a very difficult thing living in suit, living out of a suitcase, being away from home. You're in a very very confined area, 
even if you can spread out, you're basically living in a in a bus or in hotel rooms with the same 14 people in not much more than the space of a flat, but you're living and working and touring and driving and sleeping and eating together for months at a time, away from home, away from your family. So it can be a really difficult business on that side of things. But there's an awareness of it and you just try and mm-hmm. create space and let people have time and you have to be understanding. You know, it becomes family. The way that you bicker with your siblings is very much the way that you can bicker on tour and the ruthless ribbing you get from your siblings or or your kids <laughs> on tour is sort of magnified. Yeah. It can be it can be quite brutal without anyone really realising. Yeah. You know, they might just be taking the piss a bit. But it can be quite brutal when you're away from home and you've got things going on and lots of people suffer. Musicians and bands, you know, it's a hard uh, and crew, it's a hard industry. And people are only now beginning to understand it and to be aware of it. Mm. And it helps when people like Terry Hall from the specials gets involved because he's really suffered from it. Right. Lots of people do. And it, you know, it helps when people are aware of it. And that's now becoming mm. something that thank God the industry is actually embracing. Marcus, as someone new going into the industry, not mm-hmm. that new anymore, but new yeah. Are you like how would you change stuff or like how has stuff changed in the time that you've been involved? How well, how would just, I just regarding mental health and like how people are overworked and how people are, have too much to do and because I one of my best friends is in the film industry and he's now dating one of my friends who's a musician in the music industry she's been doing it for years and he is probably at the same level as us in terms of career earning about fifty times more than us and just cannot believe. The, the the I mean, obviously in the songwriting production world that I'm talking about, but cannot believe how the industry works and how broken it is, but it's just taken as a given from everyone in it. It's just like, oh yeah, songwriters don't get paid. That's just how it is. Oh, really? And I don't know much about the touring world, but I'm assuming it's like, oh yeah, you've just got to manage like 200 people or whatever. And like, that's fine. Uh, Surely you can do that. Well, the, I mean, the only comparison that I could draw is working hours. Because you, you know, if you're working in a in a shop or something, you you do eight hour shifts and then you go sure. home and you don't have to with you, breaks yeah with breaks and all that and you and you you when you go home you don't have to think about it at all you're you're you switch off yeah. whereas with this with touring anyone on the tour not just tour management or production management but everyone you go back you go home or you go to sleep you get on the bus and you're still thinking about right I've got to do this again tomorrow what have I got to prep uh, what emails have I got to send etc cetera, etc cetera. so you're never really and and for tour management especially um you're the person with all the answers for the band so if they if you're traveling on the bus with them and they need something done or need something answered you are you have to sort it out so i mean i haven't done it nearly as much as craig has obviously but like i can imagine it's uh, he thinks he has though i can <laughs> i can imagine that is i mean that it drains it drains it drains good that, Lu- that Luna Beta was brutal. Really? <laughs> yeah. Scathing. Great band. I mean, it drains but me. I mean, you know. It drains me yeah, bit, uh, doing the small bands that I've done. Winker. Mm. So I can't... And, and, and on production management, it yeah. was draining, even though I was working with people who were so good that they didn't need to ask me that many questions. And it still drained me a bit. So it is... It, it, it drains because you never get a chance to decompress. I'm going to yeah. jump in over the top of you here no, because that's right. how it works on tour. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you end up, you do end up just, you, you, when you 
like like Marcus said, when you do a job, you go to work, you do your eight hours, nine hours, whatever it is, you come home and you don't think about it. Perhaps you have to do some managerial work, but still the reality is, is you get time to decompress. You get time away from your workmates. You get time away from the pressure and you get time to have it your own sort of life. Mm. When you're on tour, you're working at somebody else's schedule. You can't have a day off. You can't go, oh, it's so-and-so's birthday. I'm going to take this Saturday off and go and see my granny. You can't do any of that. So you miss birthdays, anniversaries, all your mates' weddings, funerals, bar mitzvahs, a lot of it. Because work comes first. You know, this last time out, I missed two or three funerals of really good friends that had died through various things, mostly cancer. But, you know, you miss all that stuff. You miss things that are really important to you. So the pressure is is quite quite hard on you. And it doesn't matter which bit of touring you're in, everyone goes through it. So you let off that pressure in other ways. That might be through drinking or yeah. partying. It might be through running. It, the, the industry's changed. It's gone as the days where everyone just used to sit up doing drugs all night and, mm. and drinking. There are people that, that now that will just get out and run for three and a half hours, people who take bikes on the road. It's a very difficult life and you need to get away from the group in order to not turn into a little very, very insular unit that sort of bickers within itself and and sort of explodes right. periodically. People come in and out of favour and it's never serious. It's always little things. But all those little things and all those little pressures and the pressures from home, you know, if something goes wrong at home and your partner's there, and the kids are there, and the cooker's not working, or the heater's not working, there's nothing you can do about it. But you're getting the phone calls and getting the pressure and struggling to deal with work, which is high pressure anyway. Because mm, mm. you're not just trying to deal with, well, I'm in a shop filling up shelves, or you know, you're dealing with delivering a show to people that are paying a lot of money. A lot of people. And they're doing it every day. Yeah. You know, and they're coming in and you're traveling, you've got all this stuff going on that you're responsible for whether that's audio, wardrobe, catering, everybody is responsible for the well-being of the other people on the tour. Mm-hmm. You have to be. If you mm-hmm. want people to look after you, you've also got to say, okay. Well, it doesn't work as soon as one after. person drops that. Yeah, you've got to look after everyone. Wrong. If you're a team, right. you have to be looking after everybody. You can't have disruption. You can't right. have disharmony. For sure. So you have to take that in, and it's it's a very difficult thing to do. Mm. But, okay, so jumping back again, you fly to America after having this pressure because you just moved house. Well, but you was, moved yeah. to storage. You left a three-year-old at home. He had some crisps and a pizza, though. <laughs> <laughs> that was fine. But yeah. did, you, did you just like leave him with family? Did you leave him with... No, he was with his mum. Left him with his mum at the yeah, time. his mum and uh, his brother and, uh, and the in-laws. And just and just upped and left. Did you know how long for? <laughs> you say it like he abandoned us. It wasn't like well, no, but like that's a, that's a weird thing for <laughs> I sent, family. I sent oh, I see, right? Back. Like no, you're right. Like, obviously, you're right. It's but normal, but it's it's odd, right? Like if, if it, my dad, odd. when I was a kid, he was a um, he was a property surveyor. My mum was a psychologist, I think. And if he was like, right, I'm off now for oh, you think that, dude? three months. What? <laughs> <laughs> but if he, if he if he just upped and left like that. But it was part of what, I mean, for me, it was, that was my first real foray of time away. Okay. But it becomes the norm. You know, it's like if you have an army family or a navy family, you know, anyone in the services or a long distance lorry driver. That's just the nature of the beast. It's the nature of the beast. Someone has to do those things. Because when you said, I I didn't see it as a 
a weird weirdness at all that he would leave for months at a time. Yeah, I never told him I didn't like him. <laughs> no, because I've because I've is, obviously had it since I was born. Is this too soon? <laughs> I'm working Tesco. No, but you know what I mean. Because I had it since I was born. It's yeah, just the prison. norm. Whereas to you, that seems I went to odd. a lot. It's just that I've never really realised that actually it's maybe not. It's it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it is a bit weird. You weirdo. And now you're all going to be weird. Yeah. Never well, had a dad. Yeah. What? He's <laughs> just never there for you. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, this I don't want to say sorry. I should be saying sorry. <laughs> no, it wasn't that bad. Making it, making it sound a bit worse than it was. <laughs> it's not so bad nowadays, though, because you've got sort of Skype and, yeah, and things yeah. like that. So you can, it's very easy to keep in Based touch time. with people that you like. But I not rarely, Marcus. And I rarely speak to yeah, Marcus. I send him the occasional rude text every now and again. But, um, but, it's very different now to mm. what it was 30 years ago, even 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, I got the internet, in inverted commas, when we were in 1990, I remember getting the internet. And we were living in Devon, and I came back from London, and I, <laughs> I said to this, like, look, I've got something to show you. And I got my laptop out, and I moved the sofa, and I unplugged the phone, and I plugged my computer into the phone and I logged on. It went <laughs> for a bit. And then I went, and that's it. I'm on the internet. And, and they were like, wow, what's it do? And what I go, do with it? I don't know. <laughs> but I'm on the internet. I can send an email. There was no, there was no Google then. Yeah. There was no Windows or anything like that. My parents went to the theatre, the Stafford local theatre, to watch a man video call someone in Peru. And that was a show that people paid to go and see. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, in the 90s. Mad, very, right? very, very weird. Mm. But I had the ability to send an email and I could... <laughs> I couldn't see him. It was dark. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I could send an email and I sent, you know, you sent the odd little email and things, but it was still right. faxes. But you couldn't then keep in touch with your family. Nowadays, you know, you've got a smartphone yeah. and you can look at them. I can sit and look at him if I want to. Right. Which I don't. <laughs> but you could. But I could if yeah, I wanted to yeah, yeah. and if it made me feel better. <laughs> um, I do with his brother all the time. I chat to his brother a lot. <laughs> uh, he's the number one son and, fav and favourite, obviously. We talk a lot. What did you do on these tours? <laughs> To earn it. Supported him. <laughs> Try, I tried my best. <laughs> uh, He's always been a bit of a disappointment. Oh, fucking hell. Christ. <laughs> Jesus. No, he's... Um, I'm know, not being paid for this. Bear in mind, people can't see your face, so this is just voice. You might got to translate the joke over voice. <laughs> no, he looks serious. Joke. Oh, brilliant, there you <laughs> I go. I do jokes. <laughs> um, you are a no, joke. No, I'm very lucky. I am very lucky. He's, uh, you know, he's very, very together and... Uh, the, my proudest bits are actually not when he works for me. It's when he goes off and does his other bits yeah, and bobs. Definitely. You know, when I poodle over and I went to the Luna Bay show over at Dingwalls and saw him in full effect doing his whole trying to boss everyone around <laughs> and assert his authority. Mm. Mostly they ignored it, obviously. Oh, yeah. And I got to go in the dressing room and drink his rider That's instead so cool. of him drinking mine. Um, it, it's, it, it's, it is nice. It's great. And it's really great is when people come back to you and go, Marcus is brilliant. Did a good job. Marcus did really well. We love Marcus. No one's done that yet, but we'll get there. When they do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Eventually that'll happen. No, I'll come back. <laughs> yeah. When they do, I'll come back in and tell you. Um, but no, seriously, he's, you know, he does very well at what he does and people like him. Ish. 
Well, before we get to Mexico City, because I really want to get to Mexico City, right. but not not yet. Before that, that's it, the climax of the episode. Uh, yeah, climax all over your episode. He's <laughs> very mature as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. how mature he is. Gets it from his dad. <laughs> I, think, never make I, jokes. I made a drink, walked back in, and you were pretending to have balls in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> just about 20 minutes ago classic Craig but classic I did Craig. but I did have you my did bring coasters a, it's force of habit it's not it wasn't, it wasn't joking it was Craig bought his own coasters to flat four which is incredible I'm going to leave them in flat four as well so you can use them in the future <laughs> thank you very much I'll have more coasters straight in the bin Marcus <laughs> your dad didn't bring the coasters are they yours yeah no they're not <laughs> yeah they are and you fell for it so you did so you did make a fucking plan <laughs> I knew it you're such a bunch of chodes <laughs> <laughs> we planted a coaster in Craig's bag and then when Marcus came back from the toilet <laughs> this isn't going to trap no one's going to find really this funny this is really not going to translate very very probably Proper the funniest thing that's happened today Proper inside joke <laughs> you look so pissed off I knew it I don't know why I even entertain the idea that you bought fucking because you're coasters. a <laughs> you are a bellend you are but did you did you know about Damon before you worked with them Oh, you're changing the subject again. Sorry. Um, I was never really a fan, to be honest with you. (laughs) You never liked him? No, it's sort of, it wasn't really my thing. I was out working with other bands. And one of the funniest things, you get into this business because you love music, or I did, and a lot of people I know did, and you love going to see bands, and you go and see, you know, everybody is. And then you get a job working with a band, which is brilliant, and then you go away on tour, and in the time that you're away on tour, the music industry changes. So I've come back off tours, in fact, a couple of times. I came back off one tour and a friend of mine rang me up and he went, right, I've got a job for you. I said, brilliant. He said, it's this girl, Natasha Bedingfield. I went, who's she? She'd had three number one records <laughs> while I was away. And, and I went off with Natasha and we toured for ages and we went all around America and all over the world. And then we, we went out solo and did a load of stuff. And then I came back from that and he said to me, I've got another one for you. I've got this girl, Lily Allen. Mm. How do you like to do Lily Allen? I'm like, who the fuck is Lily Allen? <laughs> so you go and luckily you can go online, you have a look yeah, and you go, yeah, I really like her. She's brilliant. She's mm. got she's got more balls than most men I know. Yeah. She's brilliant. She's so brilliant. we toured with Lily Allen and you know, you, you can miss stuff if you're not careful. Easier now you've got things like Spotify, but because you can keep up with stuff and right. you can and you can fire more stuff out. But before that, you could miss entire you know, you could miss the whole... I never got the Smiths. Never, ever in a million years. I still years. don't get the Smiths. Well, that's fine. <laughs> you didn't grow up in a period where they were massive no. and everyone was really into them. I was just into other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because it wasn't constantly coming at you, there was very little music on TV mm. and you didn't have Spotify and iTunes and all the rest of it. You had to find music. You had to go and find yeah, it. Yeah, it was yeah. important. Music for us when we were growing up was really important. You would read up on it. Your mates would tell you what they liked. You would listen to stuff at the record shop or around their house and go and buy it or not, and you couldn't afford lots of it. Um, so you, you, your market, what you were listening to, was a much smaller sort of pool of stuff that you were pulling from. When Marcus started listening to music, he'd be going on about these bands I'd never heard of, and he'd go, yeah, I really like them, and you go, well, what have you got to listen to? He said, and he's got one song. For us, we would save up, we would traipse down the record shop, rummage around and come out with a record, and it was so important to us. But his generation and later... It's all about the song. It's not about the album and the whole process. The art or, yeah, yeah, I get it's, it's about buying a piece of music that someone may or may not have written in their bedroom. Mm. You know, I remember the big 
thing about how great Air were, if you remember Air. They recorded their first album. They recorded their first album in their bedroom. And the idea that someone could record a hit album in their bedroom and not in some big expensive recording studio in London was alien at or the anywhere time. else. You just didn't yeah. get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, there were people doing it. The whole keyboard and synthesizer thing that came in in the late 70s, early 80s changed everything. And as they got smaller and easier to work with, people did record albums in their bedrooms and rec- and do, you know. Well, famously, you had Queen using the Lindrum on uh, I Want to Break Free, the first drum sampler. And they used they used real drum samples. And they the, all the drums on that record are from that one drum sampler. And they, they were the pioneers of that. Did not know they that. were also, for a long time, couldn't play Bohemian Rhapsody live because... There was just too much going on. Really? They recorded it in a massive studio with loads of, you know, there was loads of cutting up and overdubbing. <coughs> but back then, you couldn't play 27 guitars or 27 different sounds on one keyboard. Mm. So you literally couldn't play that song without playing it basically along to a recording. Is that what they did in the end? Uh, yeah, I think so. Wow. Early doors. Yeah. And even then it was hard because you didn't have that capability of stripping everything out. Mm. So it was tied to a backing track. <coughs> Lots of, you know, technology's changed everything for us, from making music to presenting music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, definitely. And touring as well. But, yeah. in, I mean, in the, early, in, in the late 90s when you were touring with the, one of the biggest rock bands in the world, Stuff was just kicking off in the technology. Certainly, like yeah, that. certainly in the UK. I mean, we had a, we had laptops then. Okay. We didn't have laptops. If you go back to, to you know, the late 80s, mm. you, you might have had a laptop for doing your... I had a Mac Portable in the late oh, 80s, yeah, yeah, which was this, like a suitcase-sized thing that had no memory, but you could just about do a spreadsheet on it, and I would take yeah. that and do my expenses and spreadsheets on it, but you couldn't do much else. Mm. Um, and a lot of people didn't have anything at all. You were still doing stuff by hand. Mm. You know, I doing... think sat navs. I can't imagine. Oh yeah, driving wow. around <laughs> Europe without a without a, a big box full of phone. maps in the in the back of the car. But that's Just... like ten years. Because if you yeah. remember ten years ago, you bought like a Garmin and it took you mm-hmm. to like a lake somewhere. Yeah, so yeah. I wasn't really where I wanted to go <laughs> through a lake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That's so recent. I know that we've. Just I can't. I can't imagine like... now driving anywhere. Well, no smartphones. No mm. smartphones. Yeah. You literally, there was no mobiles. The first brick mobiles were uh, mid-80s. I had my first mobile phone in about 1987, mm. 88, and it was a big lump of a thing. And I remember getting it and going to uh, some sort of event somewhere and walking up with my phone and going, well, no one's going to call me because no one knows I'm here. I'll ring my mum. So I rang my mum up and I went, hi, mum, I'm talking to you on my mobile and she was like, wow, brilliant. What are you going to do now? I said, well, I'm going to sign off and uh, no one's going to call me, so I don't know why I'm carrying it. <laughs> and then it ran out of battery. And then, <laughs> then it ran out of battery midway through and probably cost me about a tenner. But, you know, that, the, the, yeah. when you used to leave a hotel or you leave the office, you didn't speak to anyone until you got to your next thing. So you would get to an, the next office or hotel and there would be two or three messages for me and you would deal with them at reception. And then nobody could get in touch with you again. You got on a plane, no one could get in touch with you. On a train, a bus, whatever, no one could get in touch with you. But you still managed to put on these shows. Mm. But nobody could get a hold of anyone. And then suddenly everything changed. You know, now it's 24-7. Yeah. All your emails, all your spreadsheets, everything's there for you. Is that, is that essential? 
Do you reckon, because we had a, a brief discussion last time about how <coughs> I read a book called The Four Hour Work Week, and a lot of it isn't applicable, but one bit it talks about is really strictly defining your email hours or your contact hours. Mm-hmm. So in your signature, you say, I will only answer emails between X and X. Could you, I mean, no. could you enforce that? No. You would just never get hired? You would never. It's just impossible now. Really? I mean, it's impossible almost in, in real life, of which I don't consider we are. We're some sort of subspecies of weirdo. But but there's definitely a, a thing now. You people want you twenty four seven, and particularly if you're travelling, you know, if you're doing time zone work. So if you're in America, then people in in the UK don't think about a time difference. They people in you. America <laughs> don't think about it, and then people in the UK you don't think so. You can end up having days that are like twenty hours long. Yeah, for sure. But twenty hour days is actually not unusual in yeah, what that's we pretty do. Standard. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can certainly do it up at six for five or six for a loading, and you don't get to bed till three or four o'clock. Mm. Um, the last show we did in Ireland was, you know, pretty pretty much oh, like that. Did I, did I tell you about that ever? No. It was the, one of the worst things I've ever done. But it was a. Uh, what time did you leave? You were so we got two hour Luna drive. Bay? Sorry, Luna Bay. No, this is with Good the Bad and the Queen. Good um, So we would be staying in Dublin, and the show was in Waterford, which is like two and a half hours south. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, the crew and I, had to get up and go and set the show up. So we we left the <coughs> hotel about. I think it was about six a.m. Yeah, originally we weren't going to do a sound check. We were just going to go down there. The crew were going to turn up and set up, and so they'd yeah. gone down in the afternoon, and we'd gone down early evening, and then we had to sound check for various reasons. We had to go down there and set up, and, and the only time 10. we could sound check was before the doors of the festival opened, so it was a 10, which was 10 a, was which was at ten thirty or something. So we had to be there. It had to be ready for us at. 10 a.m. for us to walk in and go on stage so the yeah the band walked in at 10 and had to be there so we the crew and i got there at eight is it eight yeah Yeah, before yeah just before eight and maybe maybe soundcheck was 11 soundcheck might be yeah maybe right so we got we left at six left hotel at six got there at eight uh set up that we're there all day um did the show which finished at 10 30 was it 10 30 something like that yeah um and then we did the pack down and the loadout, mm. and then the two-hour journey journey back to Dublin, which but, wasn't a two-hour journey because you had an idiot driver who, could, so, who got, even with sat nav couldn't find his way to Dublin. So yeah, this is the thing. Our, our journey home took three, four hours, four hours, yeah, instead of two. So you got in at two. We got in. No, no, we got in about four in the morning. So that was a twenty-two-hour day. That was, but that was particularly bad. Still, but it happens, nice. yeah. And and you don't have that option in this industry of going. Well, I've done my eight hours now. Well, I, I did it. I big up my bad self. I got a cut last week, and um, <laughs> I got that because I got I had did a full nine hour day at work at my old job that I did, and then I got an email saying, "Hey, we need you to produce this song." I was like, "Cool, do it by Sunday." He's like, "No, we need it today," and they're in LA, so they needed it by today LA time. Like, right. So I worked until three and then sent it off in the morning. I was like, cool, done. Hope you enjoy it. He sent me feedback at 5 a.m. And he's like, I need this done. So I had two hours sleep, got up, worked from five till nine, and then went back to my job again and sent that off and did another day's work. And that's expected. Luxury. Yeah, that's just, we do that a choice, right? That's how we're meant to work it. Well, you have to, because if you don't, someone else will. Exactly, exactly. Because it's a glamorous industry that we're in. Um, I don't know about that. <laughs> Fake glamour. What? Look, look where you are. SW19. That's true. 
Oh yeah, this is recorded in a posh bit of London, everyone. <laughs> Very posh. Yeah, well, I'm not paying that much for this flat. It's quite, it's reasonably priced. It's reason. It's a nice. It's it's a nice outlet. I can see a tree trunk through that window. <laughs> To be fair, that, that is, that is a that measure, is of, measure of quality in London. True. That is, a, there's a tree trunk and just now I saw a bus. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. What more could you need? <laughs> um, Craig, you won the Tour Manager of the Year. Congrats. Thanks. That 2011, was it? 2011. Uh, ten eleven, wasn't it? It was for the it was for the gorillas. For the gorillas, the gorillas classic campaign. I, I was nominated twice previously, but I won Didn't it. Didn't get it though. Didn't get it. Yeah, it doesn't so count. It doesn't matter how many times you get nominated, <laughs> yeah, unless doesn't. you've never been nominated, in which case. <laughs> I'll get oh, there. Sorry, my <laughs> I got drunk once and text dad saying, I'm going to win it twice. twice. Yeah. <laughs> Did you I will. tell that last time? Yeah, that was your, that was your life ambition, to oh, win, there you go. You win it twice. twice. <laughs> you can only win it twice if you've won it once. See? He's got you there. That's it's why coming. I get paid the you, big you won't know when it's coming, but it's coming. No. Luna Bay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I did. I did. And that was, uh, it was nice. It was sort of unexpected. Well, I don't think it was very unexpected because you took 55, 55 artists? 55 artists. 55 artists on tour with a band that doesn't exist. And 30 <laughs> crew <laughs> with a virtual band all over the world, including, yeah. uh, including Syria. Uh huh. Oh, it was the first. Was it the first gig in Syria for quite some time? From it memory, it was the first gig in Syria and one of the last gigs mm, in Syria. Of a Western band. Of a Western yeah. band. Yeah, we went Ever. to. Uh, was that Damon who declared? Who declared that? Who who sort of said, "I want to play in Syria." Um, yeah, we had some Syrian musicians. Damon's very. Uh, he has a very eclectic musical taste, and he likes to play with all sorts of weird people. So I've been to Africa. We've been to uh, recording in um, Lagos and. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's been all over the place recording with loads of different people. He likes to bring them out. So we had a little Syrian orchestra come with us. Not so much on that run of the ones from Syria because they weren't allowed to leave the country. So the only chance we actually got to play with them initially was to go to them. That's fucking So nice. we went to Syria and played. We had a few of them come and play in London with us at the Roundhouse, but we went to Syria to play with a whole bunch of them in Syria mm. and, um, and played in... Uh, in Beirut as well on that run. How long was that tour? That was uh, 13 months or something. Mm. I mean, it's not solid, but it, it's, long. it's, yeah, there was, you know, two or three American bits in there, South America. Mm. I, I, I saw it mentioned online. Someone, it was sort of a metaphorical question that they never actually asked you. How do you convince 55 people to clear their schedules for a year? How did you do that? You pay him. You just pay him. <laughs> no, lots of you, money. Uh, well, no, because that's that is a massive. Uh, under, it's not like you're asking Luna Bay to clear the schedule for a year. You're asking. We took. They're massive. They are massive <laughs> in my world, Marcus. But and you're my, asking like the biggest artists in the world. Well, to go on you, tour for a year. It, it depends on who they are and what they are. Some of these okay. acts. Yeah, you know, we had Della Soul with us. Della Soul do a lot of work, but there mm. was quite a lot of breaks in this. There was times when they were dropping in and out, so they didn't necessarily play every show. Right. We did have on pretty much every show with us was Bobby Womack, who sadly now has passed away, but yeah. he came out on pretty much every show with us. He came to Syria with us. That's nuts. You know, and uh, mental, the guy, you know, the guy's a legend and he was there pretty much everywhere. Mm. We had some people who only came to one show. Uh, or one TV show, you know, Lana Del Rey only performed with us once. Lou Reed came three or four times, came to London, to Glastonbury, to LA and New York. 
Um, Dennis Hopper came on a previous tour and did one show with us in uh, in New York. Yeah. So people have dropped in and out. Was that your job? I just imagine. I'm just. I don't really know the question. It must have just been a logistical hell for you. When they were with us, it, it's once you get rolling with a tour, it's fairly easy because you can, you know, you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing months up front. Pulling in the individual solo artists is the hard bit, mm. which luckily we sort of don't get involved in because the show is going to go ahead whatever, whether someone is there for a sh- one number or not. The show's going ahead. So we once you get to doing the show and you've got your set, your core number of people, you run with it and it's fairly simple. As they start dropping in and out and you get people coming in and come and going, that's when it becomes more difficult. And on the last Gorillas run, Della Soul quite a lot were dipping in and out. Mm. On days off, they would go off and do other shows. So we had quite a lot of, of bobbing in and out going on on that run, which Marcus had to deal with. We sort of dropped him in it there. Big boy. Um, the first, first job that he gave me was uh, cars, which is fine because mm-hmm. with taxis, like, you know, if one doesn't turn up, then call another you'd one. book another one. Yeah, no big deal. The other thing he gave me in day one was visas oh, for fuck, everyone fuck. in the band Having party. been to Mongolia, that's an absolute nightmare. Yeah, so I was doing the visas for like the the States and I did Russia and Japan. Oh, Russia's a bastard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> J- J- it, Japan it, and all this. Literally, it's compiling information. I mean, once you put the spreadsheet together... And you just keep collecting. Every time someone asks you for a bit of new information, you add that to your spreadsheet. And eventually you've got most of this information to hand. The hardest thing is juggling the embassies and how long they need them in for. And then the really hard bit is the people who go, oh, yeah, I've lost my passport. Oh, uh, yeah, no, no, I must send you that information. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, was... oh yeah i've got a show i've got a show in uh in south america two days before my visa comes out of the south american em- uh, out of the american embassy so i need my passport back um yeah i don't really know what i'm doing that day <laughs> i haven't got any photos that yeah. sort of stuff that was uh, there was a lot of that really there was competent. there were a few people well, it's just a different mindset, isn't it? When you're like, well, when you're creative, you you're that sort. Of, well, I don't want to speak blanket terms, but that kind of thing doesn't really come into it. You're you're yeah. you're there to you're Create. thinking about doing a, a show. Yeah. yeah, you're a performer and you're writing songs and what have you. And it's not your job to worry about that kind of thing. But then when when I was there was one time I think we had about three weeks in between two legs of a tour where obviously people need their passports. I had to get three different visas or two different visas in that time. And everyone was, because we had Americans, we had UK mm, citizens, mm. we had Nigerian. They all go in for different lengths of time into yeah. different embassies and et cetera. So um, that juggling around and then someone said, oh, I, I can't put this passport in. I need to use my other passport. And it's just a logistical nightmare. But you can't really hold it against them because it's not really their fault because they're not, it's not their job to... Uh, to worry about that, really. They're artists. Yeah. That's what we're here for. But you know what? You coped reasonably well with it. Thanks. We didn't have any major dramas. Yeah. Everyone got everywhere. And, and you're right. You know, it's like the reason that we're there, the reason you have a production manager and you have assistants is, is, to, do that stuff. is to take as much as you can yeah. away from the bands. In some ways, you take, the more you do, the worse it makes it because they get used to you doing, doing everything. It. 
Sure. So you get to a point where you're, in order to make sure stuff's happening, you're doing as much as you can. That makes sense. And then people sort of forget to do things. And it's not their fault. We're guilty or us and management of trying to just manage manage everything, keep it together and make mm. it fl flow. Mm. So you don't necessarily, they don't even necessarily see any of this. I remember anecdotes on doing um, the Band-Aid recordings, Band-Aid 20, I think it was. Okay. Um, uh, it was Natasha Bedingfield and, oh, God, Let Loose and all sorts of stuff doing doing the anniversary of, don't know it's Christmas, but the one with the darkness in and all that oh. nonsense. Diz Dizzy Rascal. And Dizzy yeah, Rascal, yeah, that, one. Yeah, that one. one. And I was doing this thing uh, and I, I'd been asked to oversee it all because the, the Blur's old manager used to manage Midger and Ultravox and he so he was involved in the first one. He put the first record together and he asked me to get involved in doing the recording sessions and managing that. Because the world has changed, now you've got things like health and safety, you've got police who've got a view about everything. Where are we? We're doing, uh, we're doing this live aid recordings at Air Studios and we've got film crews and we've got radio broadcasts and we've got press lined up. And the local police are like, we're not sure about this. You know, we need to have this all set and we need to know what's going on and we're expecting all these people because we've got social media now, so everyone knows it's happening, so we need crowd control and security. So I'd been having various meetings with um, the management to talk about what we were doing and talking to the police and talking to the studio and having meetings up there and yeah, working out yeah. little safety plans. And, uh, and I get this phone call. Will you stop fucking organising everything? It's a fucking recording session. When we did it last time, we just fucking turned up and fucking did it. <laughs> And this is Bob Geldof, who, I'm going, Bob, the world has changed. Bob called you and just said that Bob over the phone? Bob called me, and, he, and, uh, and I said, look, it's, the world has changed, Bob. Last time around, nobody expected it to be what it was. <laughs> You've got the biggest acts in the world doing your recording. Nobody knew you were in the studio. Yeah. You know, you look at the film of the first time you recorded, there were like five people outside right. going, oh, there's some cars, I wonder who it is. Right. But the world has changed now. It's all over social media, and you've got photographers and TV crews from all around the world and all the rest of it. And just just a classic for an artist, not necessarily. You know, Bob doesn't care. He he just wants the best to happen, and the best thing that happened would have been for it to be in chaos. But you can't have chaos. No. So our job is now to organise and manage that manage chaos, chaos as best you can. Was was touring um, just generally as rock and roll as people think it is? No. <laughs> well, now no, but has it ever been? Oh, oh sorry. Oh, no, no, sure. no, 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 no. I, I assume now there's it always isn't. been there's always been a job to do. Yeah, and sometimes that gets in the way of the party. Does it? Did it often get in the way of the party? Is not there any times that the party party got in the way of the job? Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you know, like, these, like when. <laughs> Um, Mexico City. Oh, fuck. What happened in Mexico City? That was a perfect segue. Let's go. Have you guys planned that while I was in the bathroom as well? <laughs> what happened in Mexico City? I don't know who I want to tell me. It's not even that big of a thing. So well, last time... Oh, I wasn't there. I just want to say So, okay. Last, it was the last show of the tour. With? Gorillas. Yep. Um, in Mexico City. Last one of the entire thing. Um, so we were all up for a night out. And uh, apart from Dad, because he actually went to bed. He's got a job today. No, he doesn't. I had to get he up in the morning. Was, we were finished. No, we had to get up in the morning and do the I job. I got up in the morning and did the job. No, you didn't. Yes, actually. I did. <gasps> no, you didn't. Oh. You got up in the morning and I said, "Why have I got your glasses?" <laughs> I got up, yeah, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> so I was. <laughs> we went out to this club and uh, I, because I'd spent the last like year and a half not drinking much, 
Anything. Because he had a job to do. Because I was doing the job. Other than the time I, you threw up on the shoes. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was Amsterdamage. <laughs> and uh, Amsterdamage is a place in Holland that everyone should go to at least once in their life. <laughs> but Okay, so there's two times. But Mexico City was the last one. And, um, and my bathroom at some point. Oh, yeah. Three times. Mm. So anyway, I had <laughs> drunk... Like far, drunk. far too much, yeah. far too much. Uh, Just on your own? No, no, we were out in a club with a bunch of people and they um, had the crew and stuff. And the band. The crew and the band. Oh, the band and like the whole touring yeah. party. Okay, cool. it was just big, and the promoter big, and just yeah. everyone, end of tour. Big celebration, big, right? Big end of tour party. So we were in this club and dancing around and then there were some cars that had been booked to take people home, back to the hotel. Mm-hmm. And one, the last car was leaving and uh, someone in it saw someone in a orange t-shirt lying in a doorway. No, it wasn't, it wasn't the last car. There was still one car. Okay. Most of the people were going. Right. So they saw this guy in an orange t-shirt lying in the doorway and they're like, Street. That, that t-shirt looks familiar. Street. No, Not a doorway. The, Street. I was in a doorway. No, you weren't. You weren't there. I got, people told me. All right, whatever. Uh, and they, they, they were like, who's that? That looks familiar. And they couldn't figure out who it was. And they were about to drive around the corner. And someone they did. Went, I they think did it's drive. Marcus. They did drive around the corner. What are you doing? Just let me tell the story. I want you to tell the truth. <laughs> you the tell whole it. truth okay, and nothing but the truth. So I've got you lying in the street, everyone left you. Everyone, everyone, no, no, a, bus, a bus was leaving. There were various buses leaving. As they drove around the corner, this girl who worked for us went, no, I'm sure that's Marcus. So they rung someone else who was still at the club and said, is Marcus with you? We haven't seen him. <laughs> is he with you? We think he might be outside. Bastard. Anyway, about about 20 minutes, half an hour later, they sort of realised that that was him outside. So they went out. And this is Mexico City. It can be a bit sketchy. It's, you know. Yeah, you wouldn't think, would you? <laughs> I, was, I was there with my wallet and my phone in my pocket, asleep. Passport. <laughs> yeah. phone, I didn't have my wallet. passport. Didn't have my passport. Have a phone did. and wallet. Phone and wallet, yeah. Condoms. Don't use them, mate. Poppers. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> Um, that was not the funniest thing <laughs> you've ever seen. <laughs> anyway, so he gets, uh, so um, and it's one of the band who found him actually, who sort of dragged him into the car and uh, drove him back to the hotel. And I knew nothing about any of this. And they didn't call me because they were like, I don't want to get him in trouble. And he, he's not, you know, it's not the most professional you've been. Mm. But it was the last night and it was blowout night and everyone was partying. Yeah. So, so it was okay. And we were all good with it. Anyway, I get a phone call about eight o'clock in the morning. Oh, we've got some things that were left behind in one of the vans. So I go downstairs and there's a pair of glasses and a few other bits and pieces. I went, that's Marcus's glasses. So I go back to my room. I'm going to breakfast. So I call him up and I go, oh, I've got your glasses. I'll meet you down at breakfast. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll be there in five minutes. And you know that bit when you're completely mullered? Yeah. And you've had no sleep, yeah. but you wake up and for about 15 minutes, you're sort of almost human. Yeah, yeah, you're fine. So he came down to breakfast and he was almost human. And I gave him his glasses back and I didn't really think about why he didn't have them until Carl turned up. Marcus. Carl turned up? Carl turned up. Well, Carl turned up and he filled us in. And he filled me in. Because I'd forgotten. About what You'd forgotten. I'd forgotten oh, because yeah. I was, so, yeah, woken up. I, I was just like, oh, I feel like shit. I must have... I don't remember coming we back. Were on the floor, in my in the hotel room. Yeah, in the <laughs> not not in the bathroom. I I was just my head was like in the hallway a bit of the room. This was in the day that he was unprofessional. Nowadays he's quite professional. 
But anyway, so yeah, Carl, Carl took, came down and he started filling me in and like piecing it together. Basically, what happened is he had got me in the van from the club, taken me back to the hotel, and then I wouldn't move out. I'd fallen asleep in the van. I couldn't, he couldn't move me because I'm quite Pass, big. Passed out. Um, so they ended up having to get the hotel to get a wheelchair, and they got me in the, got me in the wheelchair, and they were wheeling me through the hotel, and I got up and started saying, I'm not going to be wheeled around. I want to run. And so I started sprinting down the <laughs> run, hallway. Run, Forrest, run. Yeah, <laughs> sprinting down the hallway to the lift, and I got, got in one of the lifts and um, fell asleep. Went to, wrong, went to the wrong floor so, again and this is all while this guy Carl's looking after me so he had to drag me out of the out of the lift and I walked like stumbled down to my room and um didn't have my key card on me so he Carl then left me sitting outside my door went to get the key card came back and I'd fallen asleep and no I wasn't sick then I'm waiting for the sick I wasn't I'm sure, sure it's coming. There's there. always sick. Marcus and sick is uh, <laughs> so he opened the, the car, got the door open, and I just fell because I was leaning against the door. I just fell backwards, and he sort of just shoved me in, and then I started being a bit sick. So he sat with me from like maybe like I think like 45 minutes. He just sat with me looking after me. He wasn't even that drunk. What a hero. I was a mess. And this then is event- one of the musicians that he's working for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then when I start when I stopped being sick and I was just asleep he just shut the door and left me in the hallway <laughs> left me in the hallway of my room Legend. Um, and then yeah and dad's never really let me forget it since good but then so he was saying earlier that I didn't do my job the next day I did all I had to do was get people to the airport oh, I don't shout and I nailed it so shout, we man. were fine <laughs> we covered him basically good effort um, I'm glad we got there there's like a few more questions if that's cool and yeah that, absolutely um I usually ask, when will you? But when did you, or when will you know you've made it? Like, what's the image you see when you're like, oh, I did it, or oh, I'm go- that's, that's what I wanted to do with this job or with my life? Has it happened yet? Or like, are you waiting for that minute? No, I think, I think you get jobs where you, where you think, fuck me, this is brilliant. This yeah. is what it's all about. And right. I think we've all had that where you have moments. You know, it might be... Like in Marcus's case, his first Glastonbury mm. that he actually worked, got paid for, and put on this amazing show. It might be that you know this Glastonbury we just did. We put a fifty-two piece Welsh male voice choir into the stage in the middle of a show on the park live stage, on, which isn't that big, <laughs> live on TV, <laughs> uh, and made it happen. Yeah, uh, you know those kind of things. There are special moments where you where you do it, and you're like, that's what you've worked towards. With Gorillaz, with and with Blur, actually, we did two Glastonbury's back to back, and some of those were some of the best shows I've ever done with them. Right, where you you just know you've nailed it, you know that everything's clicked. I think you never think you know everything. If you do, you've got it wrong, very wrong. So you're always learning. I wouldn't say that there's a time when you you've nailed anything. Winning tournaments of the year didn't mean anything because it, it's great to be recognised. But next week you're still competing for a job like everyone else is, yeah, and yeah, you're still yeah. doing the same big big bands, small bands. It's just how much you enjoy it, and I think when you've really made it is when you can go and do a day's work and enjoy it. Can you? Yeah, yeah, you can if you've got the right people around you. Fantastic. Um, what would you say to someone just getting into music now, be it tour management? Well, in fact, yeah, specifically tour management. <sighs> Uh, what in the way of advice or yeah yeah like so my brother's 16 he wants to be a tour he doesn't but he wants to be a tour manager what what do you say to to him work hard listen look learn and uh, don't be a dick perfect 
And what would you say to 16-year-old Craig? I, I love the fact, I just want people to enjoy it. If you're coming in to do it, be useful, work hard, party at the right times. Mm, okay. Don't do your drinking drugs when you're supposed to be working. No, don't do drugs. I, I wonder which part of that I'll cut out. <laughs> don't. <laughs> do drugs. Uh, and finally, what is your proudest achievement today? Oh, these two next to me. That's so cool. You know, both of them are in the business. Both of them got in the door through a contact of mine, but they both... Proved it themselves. Proved themselves. Yeah. And have achieved what they achieve. I just want to say a massive, massive thank you to both of you guys for coming. Mark has been here literally all day waiting for this. Like since, <laughs> since 9 a.m. He's the only person who's been waiting for this. <laughs> <laughs> he was only here to get me to the door. Yeah, well, it's four o'clock. And no, just thank you for coming. Like, no I know worries. You're busy and you've got to go home a long way now. And it's just, it's really cool for you to talk to this. This is well, really helpful for someone. Hopefully it'll help someone or it'll make them think that it's not as bad as it could be. Or it'll make someone not jobs. want to do it, which is equally as important. I Less competition don't... for me, so Exactly. Sweet. <laughs> but like, I think a lot, I, know, I genuinely know a lot of people who get into music for reasons that they think are good and then they quit because it was the wrong reason and then they've wasted like... Money. Money and time. And, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's just very quickly, there's a, a thing nowadays that you've... Now you've got BIM and things yeah. like that. They're great. Mm -hmm. But back in the day you would sink or swim very right. quickly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now you can get into music because you think it's glamorous or you think this or you think that, and you can do three or four years at university, then go out and start trying to find bits of work before you realise it's the wrong thing. Yeah. It, it takes quite a special person to manage touring and being away from the family and being away from your friends, missing every birthday and yeah, you know all this yeah, kind yeah. of stuff. It takes a special person to do that. It takes time to get your head around it. Mm. Um, and it's not necessarily you've abandoned someone. It's just you have to go and make a living out of it. And there's no shame in that, and there's no shame in music not being for you. There's no shame no. in coming out of BIM and being like, maybe this wasn't right. BIM's an amazing place, as it, you know, as is Lipper and, and all yeah, these other places. But all they can do is give you the bare bones. Mm. You, either, you either have got it in your, in your head that you can deal with the realities of the long days and the travel and the sort of loneliness we touched a little bit yeah, on that definitely. on the mental health issues definitely it's not a great business for mental health it doesn't have a great record for it here's hoping that people start improving that and doing some work there are people that are and the more the merrier i agree completely um but yeah thanks for your time thanks for chatting um and i guess all i've got to say is thanks to everyone else for listening to this episode and you matt uh, of the flat forum if you love this podcast it would mean the world if you could give us a review on itunes it helps us reach tons more people and we'd really appreciate that effort thanks to craig thanks to marcus thanks to you guys for listening and we'll see you next sunday at six cheers bye cheers, cheers.